0: Let's start the Dhamma talk with the (coughs) Namatasa. Namatasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namatasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namo bhagavata arahata Tonight I'm going to talk about the three general characteristics, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. But first I want to ask you to look at your experiences during these past 12 days of being here in the retreat. I ask, I'm going to ask you some questions and you can answer them with yes or no silently for yourself. So any of these experiences during the past 12 days, has any of these experiences been stable? Have they been everlasting? And have they remained unchanging until now? Has any of these experiences given you lasting happiness? Have they given you complete satisfaction? Have they been the source of everlasting happiness and peace? And has any of these experiences happened because you wanted them to happen in exactly this way? Have these experiences been under your absolute control? Are you the owner of these experiences? If your answers to all these questions is no, then you have found out a universal law. Then you have also discovered what the Buddha had discovered. Namely, the fact that none of these experiences is stable or um, everlasting and unchanging shows their impermanent nature, shows that they are unstable, shows their changing nature. Then the fact that none of these experiences has been the source of lasting happiness, satisfaction or contentment, this shows their unreliable nature, shows their unsatisfactory nature. And lastly, the fact that none of your experiences have happened because you wanted them to happen in exactly this way or the fact that they are not under your absolute control, or the fact that you are not the owner of these experiences, this shows the non-self nature of these experiences, or their impersonal nature. As I said, The Buddha had discovered these general characteristics and in a Sutta it is described like this. This is a bit shortened. Whether Buddhas arise or not, there is this law, this fixed course of the Dhamma, which is All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. A Buddha awakens to this and then he teaches it, Thus, All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. And exactly the same goes for all conditioned phenomena are suffering. And in the same way, uh, it's also all phenomena are non self. So, impermanence, suffering, and non self, or in Pali, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, these three general characteristics are closely interwoven. As you will see in this talk, these universal laws or these three characteristics build on the impermanent and changing nature of all conditioned phenomena. In this talk, we will look at these general characteristics from our based on our practical experience, rather than from an intellectual point of view. The gateway to understanding these three general characteristics is the understanding of anicca. This means to see that nothing stays the same forever. And to see that everything is in a state of constant change, in a state of constant flux. And we can see this in our meditation practice. So for example, we can see that the rising and falling movement of the abdomen is constantly changing. And the rising movement stops, and then there is the falling movement and this disappears and then there is another rising movement. Imagine if the rising movement would last forever, if it wouldn't stop anymore, just rising, 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 (laughs) (laughs) rising. Or else in the walking meditation, observing the movement of our steps. Again, There is constant movement one step after another or the lifting movement comes to an end and then there is the pushing movement and there is an end to this and then there comes the dropping movement. Or we see how an itch, an itchy sensation arises, lasts a little while and then disappears again. Or a thought invades the mind, pops up all of a sudden, but eventually that thought will disappear. It's not everlasting. Or is the first thought you had in this retreat still happening now? We also can see this impermanent and changing nature in our life. For example, a little baby grows quite quickly, and the appearance of the little boy or the little girl girl changes um, almost from day to day. Or A youth grows to become an adult and an adult grows to become an old person. Or we are born and then one day we will die. So also our life is impermanent. Life is not eternal. And we also can see this changing and impermanent nature in nature itself. For example, a seed turns into a sprout, this grows into a plant, then a bud, a flower, and the flower wilts and decays. Or we have the change of the seasons. Fall, eventually will turn into winter, winter then turns into spring, spring turns into summer. Or the changes of the tides, the tide coming in, the tide going out. And even whole universes arise and eventually die. Even universes Uh, do not exist forever. In our meditation practice, we can see this fleeting and changing and impermanent nature of all our experiences on a microscopic level, when our mindfulness is sharp enough and concentration deep enough. I gave you a couple of examples in my last talk, saying that movement uh, breaks up in tiny little separate movements that arise one after the other in quick succession. Or I gave the example of pain, say seeing how the pain breaks up into very distinctive separate moments of little painful sensations, which also arise and pass away uh, very quickly, one after the other. So to see this changing and impermanent nature of all our experiences, is necessary in order to have no doubt at all that there is really nothing unchanging or permanent to be found in these processes. To really very clearly see that there is no everlasting entity to be found in all these objects or experiences, and to see it on the physical level and also on the mental level. So when this understanding of change and impermanence becomes very clear, the yogis, the meditators, can feel a great loss of security and stability. So, because they see that everything is in this constant chain, uh, constant state of change, and being impermanent, and fleeting, and passing away, then there is nothing to hold on to anymore. It's like there is nothing to grab, nothing hold on to and as a result of this the mind reacts with fear and this is quite a natural reaction but in the course of the practice uh, this fear needs to be overcome and it can be overcome but here the support of a skillful teacher is uh, very necessary and uh, important. Yes, this is not a very nice stage of the practice, but it's a necessary one. And this stage of the practice then leads to the realization that all these experiences, all these different objects do not and cannot serve as the base for lasting and permanent happiness. So then the realization dawns that there is no real satisfaction to be found in all these fleeting, impermanent and constantly changing objects or experiences. And so this is the understanding of Dukkha, the second of the three general characteristics. In Pali, it is Dukkha and often it's translated as suffering, unsatisfactoriness, misery. And Dukkha plays a central role in the Buddhist teaching. The hardwood of the Buddha's teaching are the Four Noble Truths. And these Four Noble Truths were explained by the Buddha in his very first discourse after he had become enlightened. And so in that first discourse, the Buddha stated the simple fact that there is Dukkha. There is dissatisfaction, there is suffering. So this is what is is referred to as the first noble truth. And so this truth says that all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory, they are not reliable, and they are not the basis for lasting happiness. This statement can make many people to feel uncomfortable. Somehow people understand, but actually they don't don't want to hear this. They want life to be enjoyable, full of happiness. And they strive to establish all the conditions that lead to a happy life. And one day, so they think, they will get there. Then they will get it right, and then they will be happy and content forever. But this is exactly where the Buddha points his finger. He really wanted us to deeply understand that happiness and peace are not achieved by arranging external conditions or circumstances, that happiness and peace are not achieved by gratifying all our sense desires. As I said, dukkha is usually translated as Suffering, unsatisfactoriness, also as stress. But all these different English translations do not really capture uh, the word dukkha. Dukkha covers the obvious suffering and pain which we mostly connect to physical sufferings, physical pain, aches, uh, and so on, and strong mental afflictions or emotions. And these kinds of dukkha um, are very familiar to us. I think all of you have experienced one or the other of these forms of the very obvious uh, Dukkha. So, I don't want to go further into this. But Dukkha also includes other forms of dissatisfaction, like on the mental level, such as sorrow, grief, worry, imperfection, frustration disappointment, fear, and so on. And of course, included here are also the five hindrances. Venerable Viranjani talked about them last night. So, I think we all agree that being overcome by dullness, one of the hindrances, at that time you are not happy. Or are you? Saying, great, dullness has come. (laughs) Now I just can kind of sit here and, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not much will be happening because I just go into this dullness and then the hour will be finished. Boom. (laughs) So Dukkha encompasses a great range of physical and mental suffering, pain, misery, dissatisfaction. Any form of life has to deal with Dukkha. This is a reality. and. As a result of that, some people conclude that the Buddha's teaching is pessimistic. If this first truth was all that the Buddha was teaching, then admittedly there would be not much hope and we couldn't have a positive outlook. But, as we know, there are four truths all so three more truths. And they state the cause of Dukkha. They state that there is a path to the cessation of this Dukkha. And they state that there is cessation of Dukkha. And so, therefore, the Buddha's teaching is in no way pessimistic. It's rather realistic. Simply starting with a fact, a truth, that everybody can relate to. And in this first talk, the Buddha did not leave it by this simply explaining or mentioning these Four Noble Truths. But he also said what we need to do with them. And in regard to Dukkha, he said that Dukkha, all forms of suffering and dissatisfaction, so Dukkha has to be understood and realized. He did not say that we should ignore this truth. He did not say we should push it away. He did not say we should work so hard that one day we can remove all uh, forms of Dukkha from this planet, which would be impossible anyway. But on the contrary, the Buddha said that Dukkha needs to be deeply understood and realized in all its different forms. A bit more than 20 years ago, I was traveling in India and I went to Dharamsala in northern India, where many Tibetan refugees live. It's also where His Holiness the Dalai Lama lives. And there is a retreat center there, and I did a retreat there. And the retreat was led by a Western nun ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And for the first three days of a 10-day retreat, she gave very detailed and lengthy descriptions of the suffering that not only human beings experience but also the suffering experienced by beings in the lower realms, the suffering of animals, the sufferings of the petas, hungry ghosts, and also lengthy, vivid descriptions of the suffering that the beings in the hell realms uh, experience. And in this retreat, there was another man from Switzerland. And for him, it was the very first meditation retreat. And so as we were queuing up on the third day for lunch, um, from behind, he tipped on my shoulder and said, Tell me. Is Buddhism only about suffering? Isn't there anything else to the Buddha's teaching? (laughs) And so I could reassure him that there was, in fact, uh, other things besides suffering in the Buddha's teaching, but that for one reason or another, this um, Western nun was uh, going to such lengths to talk about suffering. So, hearing that there is Dukkha in life, then people may say that there are moments of happiness or experiencing pleasure. And the Buddha did not deny this fact but he only pointed out that these moments or experiences are not everlasting and that they are subject to change. And because they are not everlasting, because they cease, they cannot be called true happiness. Can you remember? When you, the last time you were really happy, how long did that happy, happiness last? And where is this happiness now? Or the joy after a sitting meditation that went so well, how long has it lasted? <laughs> Are you still joyful about that? Good sit. The suffering or dissatisfaction that is caused through change is called the suffering of change. And as we have seen while talking about Anicca, it is impossible to avoid these changes because change happens all the time, because this is a universal uh, characteristic. So, in each joyful experience, in each moment of happiness, there is already the seed for Dukkha. Because it will not last forever. And so when the change comes, then it becomes disappointment. Frustration. So, through our meditation practice, we come to realize that there is no conditioned phenomena that are everlasting or permanent, or unchanging. And so we come to see that these experiences cannot become the base for everlasting and true happiness. Experiences of happiness and joy are often very fleeting, often much too short. We all know this from our own experience. Things, situations or persons can never make us completely happy and satisfied. So they are inherently unsatisfactory and not reliable. In other words, they are They have the characteristic of Dukkha. Now, the fact that we never get it quite right to be completely happy in our life shows the fact that we do not have an absolute control over our life and uh, outer circumstances. Somehow, there is always a little glitch that prevents this so much desired happiness from becoming reality. Complete happiness and contentment elude us all the time. And yet people do not get tired to pursue all the means they know to become happy. One day, and this is the big hope, the circumstances will be perfect, and then they will live happily forever. The history of mankind has shown us that this is actually a futile attempt If there were a way to become uh, perfectly happy by external means, then the many sages, the many philosophers throughout history would surely have found the solution. And by now, the world would need to be a place with great happiness and peace. But reality shows that it is not. So coming back to the fact that we do not have an absolute control over our life and uh, external circumstances. This is actually not so difficult to understand um, when we look at our meditation practice. For example, in the sitting meditation, we observe the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. The noting is going well. The movements or sensations are clearly perceived. The mind is quite focused. And then we may notice the desire, the wish, May this stay for the whole seat. I wish it would stay like this. But then a thought pops up, and out of this um, develops a strong mental reaction. Strong anger arises. So if we had the control, where is the control? we surely would have exercised control for this thought not to pop up. Or, if we didn't have that control, but then we would have the control not to let this thought turn into strong anger. Or another example. In the walking meditation, as we want to be really focused on the movement, sensation of the feet and not be distracted by uh, the environment. At the beginning of the walking meditation, we make the determination to not look around during this walking meditation, to always keep our gaze in front of us. And so, Then, we have slowed down more, already observing five parts. The lifting, the pushing, the dropping, touching, pressing, noticing great many details, everything is very clear. And then, all of a sudden, the head turns to the left side and watches the bird sitting on the branch. So, where is the control? If we had this absolute control, then we would not have allowed the head to turn to the left side. But it did. Or another example. This one is from our day-to-day life. So we do everything to stay healthy and well. So we watch out what we eat, then we go to the gym, go for walks, in summer we go swimming, we also take vitamins, we take wheatgrass, capsules, drink plenty of water and so on. And then one day we get this little pain in the abdomen. And as it persists, we go and see the doctor, tests and scans, and then we get a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. So, do we have the control over our health, over our life? If we had this absolute control, then we surely wouldn't get sick. Cancer. So to have no absolute control over our life and external circumstances is one of the manifestations of anatta, the non self nature of uh, everything, the impersonal nature of everything that exists. All phenomena, conditioned and unconditioned phenomena, are devoid of an inherently existing entity. They are devoid of a so-called self, devoid of a so-called soul or ego. This teaching of anatta, the non-self nature of everything, this stands in sharp contrast with the prevailing teaching of atta, which uh, prevailed at the time of the Buddha. In one of his discourses, the Buddha described 62 different kinds of beliefs in Atta, belief in self or soul. would be also interesting, but I don't want to go into this right now. I only want to mention that the teaching of Atta means that there is an inherently existing entity, like an inherently existing self or soul, an everlasting uh, entity which does not change, which stays the same uh, forever. And this Atta, a soul, a self, cannot only be found in persons or beings, but It can also be found in inanimate things, like rocks, trees, or a chair, a cup. But based on his own uh, practice, the Buddha could not find anything in his body-mind process that existed on its own. He could not find anything that was unchanging or that was everlasting. What the Buddha saw was whatever phenomena or processes they there were, they were all devoid of a substantially existing entity. So that's why the Buddha stated Uh, That there is no self, no soul, that there is no ego, no person to be found. These terms, I, ego, or person, they only refer to a being uh, consisting of this uh, body-mind process. On a relative and conventional level, yes, we speak of persons, of men and women. We use the words I or you, we and they. But on an absolute level, there is no such thing to be found as a self or an entity called I. So, what we conventionally call a person is a combination of mental and physical processes. And these mental and physical processes, they arise depending on certain causes and conditions. And so this teaching of anatta. Is closely linked to the teaching of dependent origination, paticca samupada. This is another topic that could fill not only one talk but a whole year uh, of teaching. To put it very simply, things, whatever this is, things. Arise depending on causes and conditions. And this applies to living beings. It also applies to non-living things, to inanimate things, to material uh, things. So it applies of course to animals, to all other seen and unseen beings, but It also applies to trees, flowers, vegetables. They all arise depending on certain conditions. It also applies to chairs, to tables, computers, cars, houses, and so on. So, with certain conditions, certain conditions, something comes to be. For example, for bread to come to be, we need flour, water, salt and yeast. So when all these conditions come together, then uh, a bread comes into existence. the texts the party texts we find an interesting conversation between a nun and Mara and Mara is the tempter like his job is to prevent people or beings to become enlightened so it's not the devil who wants people to go to hell, but he only wants to prevent that people become fully enlightened. And so... One day, Mara went to a bhikkhuni, a nun, called Vajira. And she had uh, been fully uh, enlightened. But Mara did not know that she had uh, already attained enlightenment and so he wanted to implant doubts in her mind, so he wanted to prevent her from becoming uh, liberated. So disguised, he went up to her and asked, tell me, by whom has this being been created? And the nun Vajira recognized that this was actually Mara in disguise. And she said, Why do you assume a being is here? Mara, is this your real view? This is just a heap of forms. No being can be found just just as with all parts assembled the word chariot is used so when the aggregates exist referring to the five aggregates so when the aggregates exist there is the convention a being so, The nun's, the nun Vajira's, uh, answer here has become quite famous and it is cited, uh, very often. And looking at this for practical reasons, uh, let's take a car because you might be more familiar with a car than with a chariot. So you can dismantle a car and put each part of the car on the ground, let's say in a, a um, big garage. And so then you have the wheels, the engine, the steering wheel, you have the seats, you have the lights, you have the blinkers, you have the shades, whatsoever. Many, many different parts lying around in the garage. Now that you have all these different parts lying around in front of you, do you still refer to these parts as your car? Most likely not. But then, if you or a mechanic comes and assembles these parts in a certain way, then a car will pop up in front of you. So whether it is the assembled car or whether it's all these different parts scattered around in front of you, the parts are exactly the same. There is no uh, difference. There is not more car in the car than there is in the separate parts. But still when they are assembled into a certain form, then it becomes a car with a real carness to it. And so now let's go uh, to take a person Usually people think that a so-called person is an entity, a substantial entity and so taking the person to be a real being, a being with essence or substance. We can take apart the different parts of the body. We know there are the bones, the skin, the liver, the heart, urine, the feces, uh, and so on. And we have already mentioned this asuba practice, taking apart the body. Dividing it into 32 different parts. And one way of doing this uh, practice is to take these 32 different parts and also put them in front of you on the floor. Then you have a little pile with your uh, head hair and you have a little pile with your skin and then you have the heart and you have the feces And you have maybe a little ball with the urine and the blood and so on. And so now, seeing these 32 uh, heaps in front of you, do you see a person in front of you? Most likely not. But then, if these 32 different parts are put together, Skillfully, in a certain way, then whoop, a person pops up in front of you. And again, there is no more personness in the conventional person than there is in these thirty-two parts lying on the floor. And this has been. Um, exercise that has always been uh, fascinating for me. It's so interesting yeah, to see the parts there, and it's not me, it's not the person, but then here in this form, oh yeah, that's me, that's my body, <laughs> In regard to human beings, there is this deeply ingrained notion of I. So a strong sense of I-ness. I go. I feel cold. I am happy. I am angry. I am better than you. I am such a failure. And so on. But where is this I, or what is the I? Is it in the body somewhere? Is it in the mind somewhere? Is it outside of the body somewhere? Outside of the mind somewhere? So this teaching of Anatha, teaching of non-self is the most hardest thing to understand in the context of the Buddha's teaching. It's the most difficult among the three general characteristics. It's almost like a riddle, and a riddle that definitely cannot be solved on an intellectual or analytical level again if it were possible to get a deep understanding of anatta on an intellectual level then many intelligent people would have understood this by mere reading about it but experience shows that it all oh, that is riddle can only be solved through a direct uh, personal and intuitive understanding. So not an intellectual understanding, but it must come through direct experience. And with the practice of meditation, we prepare the ground on which this understanding can unfold. Many meditators get a first glimpse of anatta in the walking meditation. So let's say the meditator is very mindful of the different parts of the steps, the movements, sensations. The mind is very calm, not distracted anymore. The eyes are restrained, not looking here and there. And also intentions are clearly known and seen. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.